If you have your Bibles, go and find your way to Luke 18. Um, sorry, I forgot I was supposed to take over the slides. Um, we we kind of we're kind of working our way through Luke's gospel this this um, spring, just seeing Jesus' interactions with various people and and how then those interactions we can then use them to shape our own lives and. Um, if, if you've noticed that there's a, there's a phone number on the, the screen, that's been there two weeks, and I forget to, for two weeks I've forgotten to tell you why that's there. So if you've been wondering, it's because I forgot to tell you. What, what that's there, that's actually the, the church's number. And so if, if throughout this um, time as we're looking at God's Word, if you have a question or, or certain, certain question that you have, you can text that, and then throughout the week we'll be able to answer those and so that's why that's there, and I just have forgotten the last two weeks. So um, I'm, I'm glad that I remember today, because every time I finish and I'm like, oh, I forgot to talk about the number. So if you've been wondering why that's there, it's because it's a way for you to respond. Just gives us a little more dialogue lasting throughout the week versus just right now. And so um, that, that will text. It should be on silent. So if you hear something go off, that means I forgot to put it on silent, but it'll be good anyways. Um, so uh, today we find ourselves at a kind of a familiar passage for a lot of people. And um, to, to kind of set up where we're going, there, there's really two questions that we need to ask of ourselves. And, and the first, uh, last week, um, Lindsay and I, and, and we were actually with the grocers, we were at Taco Bell eating. And they have the TV on, and it was some on some weather show, like these crazy weather storms or something like that. So Keaton and Kelby have been captivated by that since then. And so we've been like DVR and all the weather channel, like extreme weather stuff, and they've been watching it. And, and, and over and over through that, there's, there's this common theme that, that seems to come up when they're talking to the people, and it's talking about what they would choose at that moment to take. And at one point, the, the, the guy's talking about his son versus the dog. And it's like, he's like, there's no question about that. And we're like, they, did he really have to explain that, you know? And, but, but so we need to ask ourselves, what do we value so much that at moment's notice, we would have to save? What, what do we need in our lives or what do we have in our homes that that would be the go-to? For some people, it, it might be photographs or something that, that is from a, a, a relative that had passed or something like that. Just what is that that you would take and why is it valuable to you? And then as we, that, that kind of sets up where we're going and, for this morning in this passage. So if you will, follow along. We'll read it, and then we'll get into it. In, in Luke 18, we're going to start in verse 18, and then and read verse through, through verse 30. So in Luke 18, 18, it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus said, looking at him with sadness, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, 
then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, so we have, so we have left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time in the age to come eternal life. If you will pray with me and ask the Spirit to guide us through our time. Father God, we, we open your word, God. And I just pray that, that any time we approach your word, God, that we would not approach it lightly. God, that we would see your word, God, and that your spirit would use the truth of your word to pierce our lives, God, to, to show us where we need correction and to show us where, God, that we're relying on ourselves instead of you. God, I just pray that today your spirit would move and that we would have a, a noticeable change in our lives because of your truth and your spirit within us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so what, what you see in this passage, and, and oftentimes it's, it's hard. If you've grown up, I grew up in church, and so I've heard stories like this over and over again. And, and what I struggle with sometimes is seeing them in a different light. A struggle with knowing them in a different way. And, and so some of you, that might be the same case. That you've always heard this, and it's always told in a sense of, what are you giving up for the gospel? That, that a lot of times we look at this and we think, oh, it's just talking about holding things and, and giving them up for the gospel. And, and really, that's kind of a misunderstanding of what the depth of this passage is. That's a good surface level. But if we look at it intently, and if you've never heard this before, then, then it's, I, I actually kind of envy you in a sense because it allows you to get to the depth of what's happening here in this interchange between the rich ruler and Jesus. Because what really is at the heart of this is the question, what makes a person good? And then from that, is good enough good enough? Because when we look at this man that approaches Jesus, and if I asked you to say, if we had some paper up here, we're going to give characteristics of a good person. There's a good chance he would fit everything that we would say. Right? Everything that we would say, this man would fit. And so then the question is, is that good enough? Is, is who this man is good enough for what he's asking? And that's how we want to approach this today, because when we look at it in that sense, we understand what Jesus is doing and how he interacts with this person and that tells us then how the gospel interacts with us and then how we should then proclaim the gospel to other people and how we should defend our faith or give an account of the hope that we have, as Peter says. And so what, uh, what I want to do today is kind of look at that in a little different light. Look at how Jesus interacts and then how we should interact because of that because it's the exact same. Like We should model our evangelism. We should model our apologetics after Jesus because, after all, he's the, the one, right? He's not just the, the cliche, Jesus is the answer. He is the answer. And so the, the first thing that we see in this is the idea that, that we need to begin by asking the right questions. And, and really, to, to kind of set it up first, to, to give us a good thing, um, ruler. We always see that in a ruler asks, what does that mean? Because to us, ruler is like royalty, right? When you say ruler, uh, I often think royalty. But in, in this sense, it's merely just a leader. There, there's a good chance he was like, a leader in his local synagogue. He was, a, he was a ruler in that sense. He was just the leader. He was a young man. We get that in, in the other gospel accounts. So he was, he was kind of above the, the curve. 
He, he was kind of fast-tracked into this leadership role. And so he's, he's a young ruler in that. He's a young leader, but he's also extremely rich. We read that as we get further in the story, that he's a, he's a rich person. And so when we understand this and we look at the fact that we need to ask questions, and we talk about that all the time. If you've been worshiping with us for, for some time, you often hear us talk about it. If you want to really get to know someone, you ask questions. And you gain knowledge by asking questions. But what we see Jesus happening, and that's what the guy does first. When we look at his questions, what does he say? What must I do to inherit the eternal life? Verse 18. And, and his question there is just a general knowledge question, but it's all focused about himself. And we, we, it's an interesting story because this is one of the only times that someone approaches Jesus in the, in the correct manner in the sense of he's not trying to trick Jesus. He's, there's nothing in the text here that says that he was trying to trip him up like the Pharisees did. He's actually coming with a sincere heart. He's, he's wanting to know the answer of his question. And what he's caught up on is this idea of being good. He wants to know if his life is enough, if what he's done is enough to warrant eternal life. And that's why he asked that question. He wants just a general knowledge. But we need to understand that questions aren't just general knowledge. They can be used to create change. Right? How you ask a question or a certain type of question that you ask is going to have a, a different result. And we need to see that. And that's what Jesus does. So the, the first question we see there is, how do I inherit eternal life? And, and he wants to know that, just as uh, often you might have asked that. How do we have the security? What do we need to know so that we know that we have eternal life? And is being good enough good enough? We can be sincere about that, but we completely miss it because his question is focused on himself. And so often we find ourselves asking questions, trying to get to know people, but everything that we ask is, is a way then to get around to ourselves. Have you ever been in a conversation with that? Someone's asking questions, and even though they're asking a question, all you do is talk about them. Right? Because, and that's what this guy's doing. He's asking a question, but everything is bent back towards himself. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He's the focus, and he's not trying to gain knowledge of Jesus. He's trying to gain knowledge from Jesus to get to himself. And so often we do that. And when we have those conversations, our questions are not the right question because it's only motivated for ourselves. It's only motivated, and it's extremely frustrating for the person you're asking. If you've been in that conversation to where someone asks you questions and they're just trying to get around to themselves, it's frustrating, right? You're like, oh my gosh, just quit asking questions. Just go ahead and talk about yourself. Quit disguising it, right? Like, I know what you're doing here, and it might be the same person over and over in your life, and you're like, oh, here, they come again. And they, they ask you about your, their day. They're like, so how was your day? And then they immediately go, well, I did this. Right? They don't even care to listen, but they ask their question to get to talk to themselves. Like, well, I asked a question, now I'll go. That's what this guy's doing. He's like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And, and it's a good question. Right? We want to know the answer, but Jesus doesn't give it, right? Jesus, in, in the way he does, he answers a question with a question. And, and he does that so often. But, but Jesus asks the right question. He doesn't answer it because he knows the problem. He knows the problem in the man's heart. He understands what's happening in this ruler's heart. And so what does he do? He says, why do you call me good? And see, what he's getting at there, even in that first question that Jesus asked back, he's asking the right question because he's getting to a deeper level, and his question is going to create a response in the man to where he's going to end up basically giving everything himself. Like Jesus turns it on him, but he does it in asking the right question. Why do you call me good? Because, what? No one is good except God alone. And so he's there setting apart. Jesus is, this is the first point where he's setting apart what this man is doing 
trying to justify his goodness, and Jesus saying, no, no one's good. Why do you call me good? God alone is good. And so right there is the first instance where this man should have understood that what I'm even trying to get in this is the wrong thing. Jesus says no one's good. He points out the ruler's misunderstanding of his own condition. It's just like what Paul quotes in Romans 3.10, where he says that no one is righteous, no, not one. It's the same thing, that no one's good. And so Jesus, why do you call me good? He's pointing out the fact. He's using the right question to get the correct response from the man. And then what does he do? He lists the law. This is a Jewish guy, most likely, and so he's done all this. And he says, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And what we see in that is that when you look at the Ten Commandments, there's the, the, the theologians, they'll call it the two tables. The first table is, is the first couple of commandments that are talking about our relationship with God. Show them no other idols, no other gods before me. It's talking about our relationship to God. And then the last commandments are talking about our relationship to other people, which is what Jesus quotes here. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Bear false witness. On your, that's our interactions with other people. But Jesus leaves out the last one. He's missing one here. He's missing the 10th commandment, which is do not covet. Because he gets to that later, because he's already pointing out what's going on in this man's life. And what we need to understand in this instance, and what we need to apply this in our lives, is that Jesus has earned the right to ask these questions. Because this is a question that's going to probe into this man's life so much that it's going to eventually, in a sense, hurt him. Because it's going to expose who he is. But Jesus has earned the right. How do we know this? Because the ruler approached him. So there's something about the way Jesus led his life that, that this man was drawn to. That this man came to him, he approached him, and so he asked the question. That allows you, he's earned the right to do this. We can't just walk into people's lives not having any relationship and just start picking apart their lives through the right questions. Because that's the wrong motive. We don't have the right to do that. But Jesus does. The man has come to him. He's earned the right. So then that's the first level of application that we need in our lives. Is your life lived in the way that those who don't understand the gospel are drawn to you? questions and you build a relationship with them with the single mind that eventually you're going to get to right ask the right questions because of the relationship that you've built with them jesus's life put him in the answer in the in the position to answer and ask these questions and so does yours with the people around you because he's asking the right questions to get a certain response and that's to get to the heart that's what he says do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. He's giving these general things, but in that, asking the right questions of, why do you call me good? He's showing and revealing through his question that the man doesn't understand the spirit of the commandments. And that's what you get. And then he said, all of these I've kept from my youth. So the guy's done it. But if he's done it and that's good enough, why is he asking the question? Because he's wanting that validation and Jesus doesn't give it to him. He doesn't answer the question, what must I do? He turns it back on him. He asks the right question. And what we see in this, and this idea of what Jesus is creating, is that good behavior doesn't count. Because clearly in this, the guy's done everything. Like he's the model person. He's the person we want to know. And what we understand in this, through this, is that when we look at passages like this, we realize that just being a good person doesn't matter. You probably know someone that's not a Christian that's a good person. There's plenty of people that are good people yet don't understand the gospel. It's not about 
good behavior that saves us. It's about an acknowledgement of who Christ is. And that's what Jesus is getting at. Why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. So even keeping all these commandments isn't good enough. And that's where using the right questions, Jesus used that question to then set up where he's going. And if the man was paying attention, he's, the, the story could stop there. He could repent because he gets it. He gets it, but he doesn't. And so what we need to understand is that the right questions then have to be asked, but they have to get to the heart level. That if it's just a surface level change, it's not a change at all. It's just a difference of appearance. And so what we need to understand is that asking the right questions is our way of defending our faith. It's, it's our way. So many times we talk about in church that we need to go and we need to evangelize. We need to share the gospel. But we forget that part of sharing the gospel, probably the most important part of sharing the gospel is defending it through asking the right questions of the people that we live around. Because they're going to ask us. If your life is changed by Christ, if you've submitted your life to Christ, and you're living a life through a gospel impact in your life, people are going to ask you questions. And then you don't just tell them the gospel, you have to defend it by asking the right questions and getting to the heart of the matter. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't just let the man sit there. He gets to a deep level. Why do you call me good? That immediately goes beyond the surface level because he says you know the commandments. And the guy says, well, I've done all this. And then Jesus does what we need to do as well is that he exposes the heart idols. Look at verse 22. This is Jesus' response. Right? In verse 21, he says, Of all these I've kept in my youth. So at this point, the guy's good to go, right? According, according to what the Jews believed here, the, the, keeping the law, I've done it. I've done all of these things, so he should be. Even being rich was a sign of God's blessing. Right? You, you, you've been given all of this, and so Jesus says, You still have one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And so what Jesus then, he goes further into exposing this hard idol. He says, Who's, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. And he's getting at this point that your actions don't matter. The external display is not what matters. You need to get to the heart of the thing. There's one thing. He knows this man's heart. There's one thing that you like. This one thing that you lack is sell all you have and distribute. He knows what to ask him to expose those idols of the heart. He gets to a deeper level. And this is when, then, he brings back the Tenth Commandment. You see that? That he leaves it out at first, and now he brings it up in that. And he says, sell the one thing, the one thing. Sell everything that you have and distribute to the poor. Notice he doesn't tell him to start something to where it sets up a ministry to give to the poor. He says, no, take your stuff and give it to him. Don't organize anything, because the guy would have done that, right? Those are the external things. But he gets into the heart level of what this guy is holding back. And Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary about this, says, that, that we need to realize that Jesus doesn't preach about coveting. He calls him to do something that someone that covets wouldn't do. He's not just preaching. He doesn't just say, well, the Ten Commandments don't covet. You're rich. You're coveting. No, he, just, he exposes him, the, exposes the heart idol by calling him to something to do that if he's coveting, he's not going to be able to do. That's what he says. Distribute all that you have. Sell everything. Because in that, it exposes the heart idol that is in the way. They have to get to the point of the heart if we're going to see people change. And that happens in our lives too. If we're not on the heart level, if we don't get to beneath the sin, beneath the sin, then we're never going to truly change. And notice that it's then follow me. Right? Sell all that you have, distribute to the poor, 
That's in verse 22. Then you will have treasure in heaven, and then what? And then come follow me. And so many times we get that backwards. So many times we say, we're going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to get rid of the other stuff. What we need to understand is that we cannot follow Jesus until we get rid of the heart idols. Because if we don't get rid of those first, then we're following them with the idea of following Jesus. We're good people. We're going to get it done. Every time I'm going to mess up, it'll, it'll, it's okay because we have Jesus. But you're not really following him. You're following the ideas of your heart. You're following the desires of your heart because we haven't gotten to the level to expose those idols that places those things, comfort, security, wealth. We cannot follow Jesus until we take down our idols. And so that's an easy application. That makes it easy for me today. Is Are you trying? Are you just trying to follow Jesus and carry these things along? Like, I'll deal with those when I can. I'm going to grow into it. Eventually that will happen. We can't do that. It has to be now. You cannot follow Jesus unless you get rid of that one thing. And that's what Jesus is pointing at here. And it's not just wealth. It's that one thing that holds you back. What's that one thing in your life that you hold on to? that you create. Um, I'm, I'm taking a, a class in seminary right now about apologetics and outreach, and the, and the professor always talks about this, everyone has a sacred corner. That there's a sacred corner in everyone's life that they hold on to these things, that they, they grab onto these things, they keep these in their sacred corner, and that's the thing that they don't allow anyone to touch, that they don't allow anyone to notice. And so we need to understand that that one thing, this is that man's sacred corner. And all of us have the tendency to create that. We all have the tendency to hold on to that one thing that allows us to then act like we're following Jesus, but in reality we're following our own selves. We have to get to the heart level because that's what Jesus is doing. He's exposing the idol of this man. He's not preaching at him. He's showing him. He's calling him to action that he cannot do unless that idol is removed and then look at verse 23 what happens but when he heard these things he became very sad for he's extremely rich he realized he might not have realized that he was coveting but he realized that what i'm called to do i can't do why because he's extremely rich i don't really have to worry about this because i'm not extremely rich right some of you are thinking that right i used to think that well i'm not really rich so it doesn't matter well you can hold on to anything any amount of anything can become an idol before the Lord. And then look at verse 24. And Jesus, looking at him with sadness. I, I like Mark. We're in Luke, but I like Mark's description here because he said, his, in Mark, it says that Jesus loved him. And notice that even after Jesus has pointed to this man to the heart idol, he's sad, he can't do it. Jesus still loves him. And what we need to realize is that and this is one of the only stories in scripture where someone meets Jesus and they leave worse off than they were so Jesus never answers this question he never comes but he comes to the realization that I can't do it and so in reality he leaves in a worse position than he came because now he leaves in the awareness of what he needs to do yet he can't do it and prior to that he didn't know but until it's at the heart level it's not lasting. Until we see people change, it's not going to last. But we still are called to love them. As we're in relationship with our neighbors and our coworkers, and we're, we're trying to find ways 
where we can expose those sacred corners in people's lives and, and build that to the gospel. We're called to love those people. We can look at them and love them. We can look on them with that sadness because we realize that until their heart changes, it's not going to last. And we need to realize that it's not the wealth that condemns this man. A lot of times that's been used in this, that, that if, you're, if you're wealthy, then clearly you're not doing it right. That's, it's not the wealth that condemns this man. It's his inability to put Christ over his wealth that's condemning him. And that's the same true for anything in our lives. If we're so busy trying to control our lives, and our control becomes this man's wealth. In our life, if we're trying to control everything, that we put our control over everything, even over Christ, then it's our control and our desire to control that ends up condemning us because we're holding on to that instead of Christ. And we also need to be aware that it's not the generosity that would have saved him. And we see that happen. And we see that preached in our culture, that if you just give that. I saw a thing this week that there's a church that, that it's crazy. There's a church, I think it's in South Carolina, that, that said that they're going to do a 90-day challenge. That if you tithe and God doesn't bless you, they're going to refund it 100%. It's ridiculous. That's not the point of it. It's, it's ridiculous. And that would be looking at this story and saying that it's the generosity. If he would have sold everything and given it to the poor, that would have saved him. No. Because he's not going to give everything unless he understands who Christ is first. That's the whole thing with James showing his faith through his works. That we're saved by faith alone, but it's never a faith that is alone. It's not generosity to save, and it's not the wealth that condemns. It's a heart focused on something other than Christ that condemns, and it's a heart focused on Christ alone that saves. And we have to understand that. We have to let the gospel expose our hearts. We have to go back to that. We have to go back to Scripture. And it's not easy. You know, I sit here, and I'm, uh, we're singing a song, Jesus is Better, and it just overcomes me because this has probably been one of the worst weeks for my control. And I sit here and sing that, and I'm like, can I sing that? Can I really say that Jesus is better in anything? Because if I can't, then it hasn't impacted me on heart level, and it's not really a gospel change. It's just an expression of a desire. So it's not a gospel change without a heart change. We can't say Jesus is better and then try to control our lives and worry about things. It can't be done. We have to get to the heart level and expose that, and we have to have the truth in our lives so that we can then speak into our hearts, that we can allow the truth to shape us because that's when our lives are changed then. And until then, it's just a, a behavior modification. It's not a change. It's just a, a Band-Aid when stitches are required. You can't do it. And that leads us to the reali realization that we have to be giving up control. Right? We like to control. But you can't change your heart. Have you ever tried? Have you ever tried to change? You, you, a New Year's resolution is a perfect example of this. How long do they last? Most people, I don't know that anyone's ever done it for a year. And maybe they're not supposed to be for a year. But then that's just weird too, right? Like, if we're going to do something new for the year as a New Year's resolution, we should do the whole thing. But it never lasts. Why? Because it's just trying to change ourselves. We can't do it. We don't have the willpower. And we need to realize that only God can change us. And that's where verse 26, look at 26 real fast. He gets the, it's difficult for the wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye needle. Great hyperbole there. Like he's not literally saying a camel is going to go through that before a wealth 
he's just showing how difficult it is. Right? And then those who heard it, those who were around hearing this said, well, then who can be saved? They're freaking out, right? Like, if, it, if this guy that's this good and, and, and wealthy and they can't enter the kingdom of God, but wealth is a sign of blessing in this culture, then how, what, who can be saved then? Right? It seems impossible then. Well, if I can't do this thing, if we can't just be good people and do it, then who can be saved? And that's why 27 is an amazing thing. What's impossible with men is possible with God. Only God can change our hearts. It's impossible for us to change it, but it's possible for Him. We make it so difficult sometimes. I laugh at myself sometimes because I'm like, it's so easy. Why do I make it so hard? Why do I try to change myself when I realize that I can't? Yet we continue to do that, right? It's because we focus on ourselves instead of on Christ. Only God can change it. Verse 27 is an amazing declaration. What is impossible with men is possible with God. What an amazing thing. That means those people in your life that you think there's no way they'll ever come to Christ. That's possible. It's not possible by what you're doing. It's possible for God to change their life. There is no lost cause. We have to keep praying that God would intervene because that's the only way that change is going to happen. And you even get that when, when Peter, and Peter says, see, we've left our homes and followed you. Like he's getting his, right? You gotta love Peter. He's like, okay, look what we did. We've, we're here. We left everything. We followed you. And that's why I wish we could be in, in Matthew. I don't want to go read it, but the very thing that follows this after Matthew is the, the parable where they're in the vineyard and they all get paid the same amount. And so when we look at that and we see that, that really there's some arrogance in Peter's comment here, right? He's like, look what we did. This guy doesn't get it, but look, we left everything. We gave up everything. And we're here. And then Jesus and Matthew records the next thing that he says. And he says that everyone, even the people that showed up early and the people that just got there, all got paid the same amount. So, it's, okay, great, Peter. You were here before they were. You still get the same thing. You know, you don't get an extra gold star. You don't get two gold stars. You get the one thing. You get me. And so then he says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house, wife, brothers, parents, or children for the sake of the kingdom of God that will not receive many times more. Everybody gets the same thing. Last week we talked about the cross. And we talked about the thief on the cross. Remember me in your kingdom. He got the same reward. Even though he was on a cross condemned as a criminal, then we get now being faithful. Everything is the same. Because what's impossible with men is possible with God. We all get the same amount. And then that last part, it's, it's just the realization that, that Jesus can say that because only those who are going to change will have their hearts exposed by the gospel. See, that's why I can say there's no one that's left this because people aren't going to leave their house, their wife, their brothers, their sisters without having their heart changed first. So that's why a lot of times we look at statements like that and we're like, wait a second, well, what about this? What about if you, have, if, if you see who Christ is, and he changes your heart, and you leave those things, that's the only way you're going to leave all that behind. That's the only thing we're going to not look at the things of the world and be amazed by them if, if Christ is not the, the major and the main captivator of our hearts. Otherwise, it's not going to happen. You might go for a little while, and then you fall off. You might have this great experience, and then it leaves. It reminds me of um, um, a time in Jonathan Edwards' book, The, the Puritan Pastor. He wrote a book called Religious Affections. And at one point in that book, he's talking about the fact that 
that men will only follow, follow God to the point that they know him. And so that, that our affections are only going to go to the point of God that we actually know who he is. And so then, as we look at a passage like this, we understand what Edwards is saying, we have to ask ourselves, do we truly know that God is the one that can make the impossible things possible? Because if we don't understand that, then we're never going to realize the magnitude of the story. We're never going to allow our hearts to be exposed by it because we're going to always keep holding on to something. And we have to. We have to go back to this idea that God is the thing that can make impossible things happen. Verse 27 is the thing that I focus on so much every time I come back to this now. What's impossible with men is possible with God. And if you truly believe that, then you need to stop trying to change yourself and submit your life to Christ because only He can change you. And if you're trying to do that, there's a good chance that you've had a long track record of doing good and then you fell. And then you go into this depression or this, this state of sadness and you get excited again and then you keep trying. And it's just this cycle over and over and over again. You can't change yourself. I can't change myself. When I, when I have feelings of anxiety and where I can't make that stop, but I can submit to him, that I can go to him, I can speak the truth in my life and let the word saturate me, and that then takes my affections because I know that it's impossible for me to control that, yet it's possible for him to change that word into hope, that anxiety into comfort. And that's the same with all of us whatever you're dealing with in your life, whether it's sorrow, frustration, anger, depression, all of that, God flips the other way and it shows you where he completes that. And that's what's amazing about this. It's not about being a good person. It's about allowing God to change your hearts because you can't do it. But what's impossible with you is possible with him. And that's what I pray that we become a church that, that sees people for who they are and begs and pleads with God to change their life and begs and pleads with God that we get to see that. What an amazing thing to see someone come from death to life. And I pray that that's who we are, that, that we're a church marked by realizing that, that our affections should be pointed to Christ alone and that we're incredibly blessed where we are but nothing compares because he is better than all of that. Let's pray. Father God, I just thank you that, that we don't have to change ourselves. God, I thank you for the truth that that you've given us that reminds us that we don't have to change ourselves, that we can't. And I just pray now, God, just for the, the people here, God, that, that their hearts would be stirred, God, that the idols of their hearts would be exposed by your truth, God, that your spirit would reveal that to them. God, and instead of trying to change themselves, God, that they would turn and submit to you. If they would understand and know that you are the one that makes impossible things possible. That you're the one that can change heartache and sadness and sickness. God. That you are sovereign over all. And that in all, 
we can submit our lives to you and know that despite the circumstances, we are secure. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.